Welcome back for another Gospel Conversation. Uh, David Frizzell here, Vicar of St. Christopher's in Garner. Great to be with you again, John. David, great and, to be with you. Absolutely. John Gibson, Vicar at Grace Clayton. Yeah. So our Gospel passage for today is John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. And uh, John, I'm excited to hear you talk about John. Okay, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's an exciting uh, chapter. In, well, of course, all of it is exciting. Uh, but one thing that's very interesting about this text, and just for those who are, are watching us or listening to us, because I do want to get this as a podcast as well, this is the cleansing of the temple that's what it's called in reality what it is is jesus goes into the temple makes a whip knocks some tables over and this version john's version is different so this is one of the few events that we see in all four gospels this one is different in two regards uh, that are important the first is that this takes place in John chapter 2. So this is at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. It's right after the miracle that he does at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, and that's where he takes water and turns it into wine. And uh, it's different because in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that it's at the very end of his ministry. It's at the end of his life. It's when he's gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. So this is different in that regard. Another difference is that in this particular passage, Jesus says, stop making my father's house a marketplace. Now, in the other gospels, and those three gospels are called synoptic gospels because they, they look alike, they're similar. It says den of thieves or den of robbers, depending upon your translation. So it's a different, very different angle here. One thing that gets my attention, and I have to admit, it's, a, it's just a detail. And uh, I don't know that there's a whole lot really to make of it. But it says that this temple has been under construction for 46 years. The reason that kind of gets my interest is because... I like history, and this was the case. So Herod the Great, uh, around 19 BC, he started rebuilding the temple, and he rebuilds it in the Greek style. And so uh, like it took sometimes centuries to build the great cathedrals in the medieval period, this is a work that takes a long time. It actually becomes one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It's enormous and really quite magnificent. It continued after Herod's death. Uh, and so this is something that's one of those pieces that it, it does really speak to the historical period. It, it, it roots what, what we see happening in the gospel uh, in in history itself. And um, so, I, you know, just as a detail, I like that. And also it, to me, because a lot of times people will say, well, you know, I mean, how real is this? I mean, you know, this is a, is a detail that is historically well known. 
uh, and I've never been to Jerusalem. You have been to Jerusalem. Um, but of course, whenever people go to Jerusalem, one of the things that they always go to see is the Wailing Wall, which is one of the retaining walls built by Herod, enormous blocks of stone. I've seen pictures again, I haven't been there. Uh, so we do see the remnants actually of this amazing temple that Herod built. And again, uh, just to say it really grounds this story of Jesus in its place and time. Um, and then the one other thing that I'll just comment on uh, is something that I got from the commentary. So before our conversation, I read a commentary in preparation. And I liked what this person said. I can't remember the name of the biblical scholar, but a lot of times what gets our attention uh, is the conflict. So Jesus making the whip, driving people out. Uh, that's kind of what gets our attention, the drama. But what this scholar said, this passage is really more about is about Jesus's death and resurrection. It's also about uh, you know, in terms of our own spirituality today, it's where do you experience God? So in the ancient world, Jews believed that God resided in the temple. Uh, and so what Jesus is saying is, is that God resides in him. And then, of course, by analogy, continues today throughout the world in, in Christ's body, in us. Uh, and, and so I think that that's a particularly powerful, um, powerful part of this text. David, what, what do you get out of this? What do you, what do you see? What gets your interest? Well, um, just to kind of extend the, um, the history piece, I think this is helpful background. Um, just knowing a bit about why there would be money changers at mm -hmm. the tables in the temple. So mm -hmm. as you know, John, um, but you wouldn't have any reason to know necessarily um, it, unless you already heard it in a sermon or something or read about it, is that you, not all money was allowed inside the temple. I think that's because you can't have anything with images and coin, Greek and Roman coins had images. So people would take Greek and Roman coins and exchange them for money that could enter the temple. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so in this um, gigantic building begun by one Herod and I believe continued by Herod mm -hmm. Antipas, um, this changing would happen and a large cut of the proceeds would go to Roman authorities like Pontius Pilate. Mm -hmm. um, and in return, those authorities would reward the chief priests and elders. So mm -hmm. it was a real cozy arrangement um, between the occupying force, Rome, mm -hmm. and the religious authorities um, the, who were capitulating to this occupation and this kind of one symbol. Also, another symbol of that is that when Jesus walked in, he would have walked in underneath the Roman eagle, which mm -hmm. Herod had placed at the entrance of the temple, which is like symbol of the empire right as you walk in the temple. So it was a, a pretty terrible um, 
juxtaposition of symbols. So for me, that just helps me to kind of hear what a big deal it is for this wandering Jew to go in and turn over this economic political system um, that's all enmeshed. I mean, it's it's uh, kind of amazing he didn't get arrested and crucified here in chapter two, when you think about it that way. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, and, and that is why many scholars believe that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are historically more accurate in terms of placing that at the end of his life, because yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, the, this was grounds to crucify him because, like you said, he's challenging the whole system uh, and uh, a system that, well, I mean, I think the word you used was collusion, and that's quite right. And so, and basically, who were the people who were colluding? Well, the Roman authorities, yes, but also the well-to-do people who had the most to lose. Uh, and devout Jews really did get quite angry about this. So there is uh, under Pontius, when Pontius Pilate was the governor, there was, he was a, a very um, uh, obstinate man. I mean, even uh, Latin writers would say that about him, harsh, cruel man. Uh, and he at one point had Roman troops march into the city with their standards. Now, the standards were considered divine. Uh, and so he didn't have them covered or anything like this. And riots broke out because of this. It was because they were seen as divine and because they were images. And on the coins, there weren't just images of emperors, but there were also the images of the gods. And so this was quite, um, quite a big deal. Uh, and, and I think you've really put your finger on it too, because in many ways, what these money changers were doing and selling of the animals was a valid and necessary function because again, devout Jews did not want to have coins, but of course these were the coins that were circulating and they might've had them in their village and they would have come many of them a long way. You have again, have been to Israel, I haven't, but you know, if you're a pilgrim coming from Galilee, we're talking about a three or four days walk. Most of these are not gonna bring animals with them. So it's very important that you can buy an animal to sacrifice. So this is a, a very different system than the one that we know about. So at the heart is this um, animal sacrifice ritual. And so they're actually performing a valid and important function, but uh, and many scholars would say that what's going on here it is this collusion between the Roman authorities and, in, in particularly, um, the authorities uh, of that time, and particularly the wealthy people. And one other indicator of this is that the chief priest during the time in which Pontius Pilate is the governor, Caiaphas, he is pretty much the high priest for the entire period of time. Now, Pilate had no qualms about replacing an individual, but the fact that he was the high priest for that entire period of time shows uh, that they had a close, good working relationship. And um, so I think that's another indicator of what's going on here. Mm -hmm. 
how do you see this playing out? I'm just kind of curious. This kind of question popped into my mind. How do you see this playing out today for us? I mean, where might be the marketplace that if Jesus were here today, that he might turn over? I mean, might he come into one of our churches and see something uh, or or is there some other way in which in our society, and I'm just kind of, I'm wondering aloud here, I don't have an answer in mind, um, but it just kind of a question that again, popped into my head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great question, John. Um, you know, I don't, yeah, I'll tell you, I'll share, what comes to mind first, and this has to do with some reading I've done in the in the last year. Um, actually, my senior warden was listening to Fresh Air one evening, and Terry Gross was inter interviewing a guy, Robert P. Jones, who wrote a book called White Too Long. Hmm. And the subtitle of the book is something like um, the history of racism in white Christianity, mm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, so the kind of, uh, gosh, collusion or enmeshment um, between white church leaders, white Christians, and the institution of slavery, and then segregation, resistance to reconstruction. Um, you know, he, it's a long book. It's well-researched and he's writing from the inside. Uh, he grew up Baptist somewhere in the South and I believe was ordained. Um, and then sociologist or historian from Emory, he got a PhD from Emory. Anyways, he makes a very compelling and lengthy case that it has been enmeshed from the very beginning. Um, and deeply enmeshed. Um, and even today, you know, one of the main, well, it's a very reliable predictor of racist attitudes. Um, if you're Christian, the, the chances that you have them goes way up in the white church. Mm. And it goes down in the other direction if you're not. There's mm -hmm. very sobering stories from the past and um, sociological research now so when you ask about what, what kind of social system has been overlaid onto our religion today that I think would be deeply um, offensive <laughs> to Jesus that he would want to take a whip and, and stir up some trouble around, that's the one that comes to mind for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great one too. And you know, so much of these things, uh, a great point, uh, so much of these things are so embedded in our society that we don't a lot of times even think about them. And one thing that I learned, and this was several years ago, and it was through the diocese, and you might remember it as well, in which they were talking about um, before the Civil War and a lot of times people think the system of slavery was limited to the South, and in a certain way it was, but 
in reality, the point that was made was how the Northern economy was so tied up and dependent upon the, uh, the slaveholding system. So a lot of the commerce, uh, so in this triangle uh, was actually coming out of Rhode Island. And, uh, and so there was cotton production in the South by slaves and then mills up North that were using that cotton. And, uh, and it was just completely enmeshed uh, with, with one another. Um, you know, another, uh, another area that I think uh, so I think racism is a really good point. I, I do think also that our economic system right now, which is so dependent upon fossil fuels and the damage that is doing to our world, and we are tied up in that inextricably. I mean, it is very difficult to be for an individual to be carbon neutral. I mean, it's possible you could have solar panels on your house, you could drive an electric car, although odds are you're not gonna be able to generate enough electricity from the solar panels on your house to completely run your house, but maybe as well as generate enough electricity for a car. Uh, and then of course the clothes that we buy and everything. I mean, it's, we are really yeah. caught up in this fossil fuel economy, which is doing yeah. so much. You got to go really radically off the grid to really, I mean, right. And, and it's uh, kind of a different way of participating in, in human community. It's uh, mm -hmm. yeah, there aren't a lot of, a lot of options right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that might be another way in which Jesus, if he were here today, um, and uh, yeah so yeah well i think the other thing though uh to talk about is that jesus does really change it up so he points very clearly at an issue uh, of the day uh, an important one uh clearly for not just for faith, but for society as a whole. But then he also does talk about the resurrection. So he isn't just saying this system is corrupt. He isn't just saying it needs to come down. He is showing the possibility of, of hope, the possibility of something better. Because I think sometimes when we look at issues like racism, which are so embedded and in our society has made such progress, but it's obviously still such a challenge or climate change. And I think we have made progress, but again, a long way to go. You know, it's easy to kind of throw up our hands at this, but Jesus does talk about the resurrection. So this temple has been under construction for 46 years and, and, and then he will raise it up in three days. Uh, so. Yeah. It's an interesting kind of, it sort of invites them to tear it down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe uh, there isn't, you know, obviously there are a lot of interpretations and a lot of directions that people can go with any text, but maybe one of them is in terms of 
looking at our own society, looking at some of the ills uh, that we face, or maybe there's some things in our lives too, our personal lives that you know, are challenges for us and an invitation to examine those, an invitation to you know, tear it down or maybe let it go. This is a season of Lent, obviously. So it's a time of reflection, time of turning again to God. So I think, I think there's that invitation there and the hope of something better for us. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yes, indeed. Don't really have anything to add to that. But yeah, the, uh, you know, the, he's talking about Paschal mystery here, death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, in, in the gospel, according to John, when it gets to his um, final days and his trial and even his execution, it kind of portrays him as Jesus as in charge mm-hmm. in a certain way. Um, more so than the other three gospels um, can kind of be read on two levels on at the same time. There's kind of a deliberate irony, you know, where Pilate's in charge, but Jesus also speaks as if he were running the whole thing mm-hmm. kind of by Christology. But here it's, I already see it going on here. Destroy this temple. It's like in the indicative telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, this is, this is what will happen. You will tear down the temple of my body and then I will raise it. I will raise it up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it's also the case that we see over and over again in John, there are, there are two levels. So there's the superficial level and generally within John's gospel, that's the way people interpret it. And that's what they interpret here. They say, well, wait a minute, this, this, temple is ginormous 46 years what are you talking about when he of course he's not referring to the the building the the temple mount he's talking about his own body so there's within john there's always these two levels people within the gospel itself frequently they interpret it at the superficial level but for us as the reader we are to understand the uh, the deeper level because uh, we're able to see it from, you know, the, the, the vantage point of after the resurrection. Um, right, right. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, scholars um, believe John's gospel was sort of, it came to its final form after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Mm-hmm. So this and uh, his conversation with the woman at the well, where he says, you know, it's neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem that we'll worship the Father, we'll worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I think the evangelist also has that perspective. Um, that the temple really will be torn down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At level two. Yeah. I'm just hoping that the good people at Grace Clayton don't interpret this passage literally during our shared service on the 14th. I don't want to be part of a... Yeah, I, I hope not because crazy. I, I don't know what I would do if people came and just started ripping the building apart. I mean... Yeah, I mean, either. I mean either. <laughs> We've worked hard to kind of upgrade the facility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. 
Well, maybe it's a, an invitation to upgrade in more ways than just the physical. So, hey. <laughs> Good. well, David, thank you so much again. This has been a great conversation. I do want to just uh, give folks a little reminder that on March 14th is our joint service. That's what David, of course, was referring to. That service is going to be at 1030. So that time is the same for uh, St. Christopher's folks, a different time for Grace Clayton folks. This service will be on Zoom for folks at St. Christopher's, and it will be on Facebook and YouTube for folks at Grace and anyone else, of course. And uh, so I'm excited about that. Uh, folks, uh, if you're watching this, David and I, we were, before we started recording, we are planning for that service. And so I'm excited about it. Looking forward to doing it with you, David. Looking forward to that too, very much. Um, yeah, can't wait. I think that'll be great fun. And thank you for your hospitality. Thanks for changing your service times and, um, and uh, you know, doing the, the Zoom as well as the Facebook Live and all that. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited about it, and uh, definitely it's exciting to do it with you, and one of the benefits, actually, of this time that we can. Also, I just want to a shout out to Chris Paul, the production team, because uh, if it was up to my technical skill, we wouldn't be having a service, period. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm thankful that they know what they're doing, and they can do this for all of us. So, anyway. Yeah, yeah, I'm grateful, too. All right. Take care, David. Thank you. You too, John. Peace.